0: With one of my favorite people uh, on the internet, Johnny uh, Sanfilippo, which I think you're really going to enjoy. He's a he's a very uh, thoughtful uh, and uh, very intelligent uh, observer. I think of reality and uh, offers a different perspective than what you know, I have often heard in the, in the professional world. One of the funny things is, as I record uh, this piece, uh, there was some crazy news today in Silicon Valley related to a, a banking collapse. And uh, we actually touched on some uh, related issues in this conversation uh, about uh, Silicon Valley, about the Bay Area, and about possible futures for uh, that region and for uh, California and the rest of the country. So I think, I think you'll find this uh, conversation timely as well. At any rate, thanks for listening as always. Enjoy. Welcome to the uh, Mesa City podcast. I've, uh, I've got a wonderful guest uh, here today, one of my uh, uh, favorite reads on the internet, uh, certainly one of the most interesting um, people that I correspond with uh, occasionally, and it's uh, Johnny Sanfilippo from uh, the Granola Shotgun blog. Uh, Johnny, welcome. Good to be here. And uh, greetings from Mexico City. Yeah, and you're actually in Mexico City. Why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us what you're what you're doing in Mexico City?
1: Um, I've been visiting Mexico City for quite some time. I have had friends here from Spain who lived in Mexico City and uh, increasingly Americans who have relocated here. Um, Some part-time, some have actually gone through the immigration process and now live here full-time. I'm also getting my immigration card. That's the reason I'm here this time. Um, It's not like I'm leaving the States, but I like having the option of coming here because it's actually a fabulous place.
0: Yeah, I've not uh, I've not really spent any time there, but it's been on my short list for a very long time. Had a number of friends tell me it's uh, really one of the most interesting cities in North America.
1: Yeah, it really is. It's a great place. And the weather is amazing. I mean, people always picture Mexico as a hot, dry desert landscape. Or if you go farther south, then it becomes like a tropical jungle. Right. Mexico City
0: is in the sweet spot. It's Honolulu all the time. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you, uh, you're you selling me on it. So it's definitely going to yeah. make the list. Uh, hopefully hopefully, sometime within the next year, we're looking at it. So uh, I'd love to actually get the kids down there sometime too and see how they would react to, uh, to yeah, being it's, in a city. It's like a there.
1: great place. Good food, nice people, good weather, lots yeah. of well, it's a good urbanism. I mean, that's that's one of the big attractions. Is if you're in the right part of the city, the older part it's everybody walks everywhere. There's bike lanes everywhere. There's, and it's just, it, it's
0: a, a gracious, lovely place to live. Wonderful. So Johnny, I'm not, uh, I was thinking earlier today, I'm not even sure when I first became aware of you or uh, your site. Um, it's it's certainly been several years, uh, probably at least five or six years. How did you come to, uh, what, well, why don't you talk a little bit about what Your site is what Granola Shotgun is, and how did you come to writing that site to begin with? Uh,
1: Like a lot of people who start a blog, uh, I was firstly trying to clarify my thoughts for myself by putting them into words and pictures, and partly it was like therapy. Like I needed I needed to vent about some of this stuff, Uh, and then evidently enough. People stumbled on it probably by accident. That I started to interact with Chuck Marone and the Strong Towns people, and uh, the, the, you know Congress for New Urbanism and Urban Three and the Incremental Development Alliance. And I wound up sort of going around the country to all these conferences and meetings and, and just exploring all these different places, you know, to see what they're like. Um, and I thought that. I was going to learn how we can build more of the kind of places that I love by going to people who are a lot smarter than I am, because uh, I have no credentials, I have no uh, no certificates, no stamps, none of that. I'm just no, I'm just kind of like a flunky um, who's who's like intensely curious about this stuff. And I thought, you know, if I could surround myself by all these like interesting smart uh, the engineers and the architects and the, the, and the public officials and, uh, who actually do this stuff for a people pay them to do this stuff. I would figure out like how I could I could do it myself or at least had to understand more how they're doing it. And what I discovered over the last 10 or 15 years is that it's really, really hard and most people fail at it and they fail at it because we live in a society that doesn't really want any of this stuff and it's very frustrating. Um, and part of my journey with the blog, was to to confront reality head-on and to let go of a lot of the oh wouldn't it be nice if, you know no it's not going to be nice we're not going to do that we're, we're going to do something else and you can either get you like know, keep banging your head up against a wall or you could learn how you can achieve your goals by other means and I think that's really where I've come to with the blog and in my own life like um You know, you can't go to some cookie-cutter suburban subdivision with the eight-lane arterial lined with Jiffy Lubes and McDonald's and then turn that into Paris. That's not going to happen. You have to let go of that stuff, right? Um, It's more like if you're going to live in a suburban environment, which can work, you have to embrace it on its own terms and do the things that you can do within those parameters, right?
0: Yeah, Or you
1: can simply choose to live someplace else.
0: Yeah. Um, And, uh, and I think a lot of us kind of in the field even struggle with that. And, you know, I'm one of those people that you know has worked in the field a long time and been, you know, I'm an architect, I'm an urban designer and done a lot of planning and writing zoning codes and all that sort of stuff. And, and so I'm, I'm one of those types of people that you're referring to. Uh, And it was interesting to me when I when I first started reading your blog, uh, I think I was attracted to it um, because first of all, the storytelling is really, really good. Um, not just the writing, but the, the way you use photography on the site and everything else. Um, but also just the 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 fact that there was a, a perspective that within the professions and within the field that we don't often hear or talk about very much that was um in a certain sense it's like it's like getting a dose of tough love um for people, which I think is which is helpful. Uh, And so I, I, you know, as as you talked about your own exploration, it's been interesting as as I read and digest what you've written, it's affected my own exploration of a lot of these issues. And, you know, I think one of the things that a recurring theme that you talk about is uh, really related to how your your uh, perspective of how the future may go, especially related to suburbia and American cities is really different from the narrative that a lot of us in the professions would like to put forward uh, about what could happen or what might happen. So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and and just, you know, how you see um, American cities and suburbia likely changing based on what you've seen and what you've experienced.
1: So I, I see most of what we build in North America, at least since World War II, since, since the, the suburban thing really started to kick in at scale, is that we build disposable places. We build places that uh, are kind of shiny and new for about 20 or 30 or 40 years, and then they age, and then they decline. And they decline subtly in ways that people can't quite understand because it's it's um like the typical nineteen fifties tracked home suburb uh the houses were quite small they they had two maybe three bedrooms, one bathroom, you know and uh they they aged together and they became less desirable for people who had a little bit more money and wanted a bigger house. And they wanted nicer neighbors with more money. And so there was this migration away from those original suburbs toward newer, shinier places that had more bells and whistles and there were more prestigious and stuff. And what that did is it created a vacuum behind where poorer people would fill in the older suburban neighborhoods. And the reaction is, oh, that used to be a nice place, but then the wrong element moved in and they ruined it. But actually, it went into decline first. That's why poorer people could afford it. They couldn't have afforded it otherwise, right? And while that was happening, the pipes and the road networks and all of the infrastructure started to decline because you, you know a pipe will last for a certain amount of time. And after 50, 60 years, you've got to dig it up and you have to replace it. Just like you have to replace all the windows and all the houses and all the roofs and all the furnaces and you know and the the maintenance costs on a municipal level outstrips the revenue, and that's when things really get funky. You wind up with the like why can't Flint, Michigan afford its water treatment plant you know like it it, it seemed like oh, all the wrong people moved in and they destroyed the place, but actually it was failing anyway um, because we don't allow older suburbs to mature. That means they become more intensely used. You take the little houses and you put up a bigger thing on that same piece of land. Uh, we don't allow that. Uh, it means that there's really no way to add value, to generate more revenue, to, to deal with the maintenance. And at the same time, all the school teachers, all the police, uh, uh, all the firefighters they all have these accumulated legacy costs, all the pensions and all the healthcare expenses roll in and they accumulate just when the revenue is dropping. And it's just, a de- so what you do is the people who can afford to, they move to the next new place, but then you've got the 1970s era suburban subdivisions that they begin to age. So then you've got to move to the 1990s uh, neighborhoods. And, Like I was born in Los Angeles, but I spent a big chunk of my growing up years in suburban New Jersey. And if I look around at all the people that I went to high school with, the majority of them didn't just migrate to a newer suburb in New Jersey. They moved to North Carolina. They moved to Texas. They moved to Florida because they were were resetting the clock. Okay, it's all new, new infrastructure, no legacy pension costs for the municipalities, right? And it's just like the clock is ticking. It's just going to be a point where they're all going to become less valuable, and the maintenance bills are going to come due. So it's a slash and burn kind of urbanism,
0: right? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. But, so I, I think as you talk about that, it reminds me of um, you know one of the pieces you wrote a while back where um, you, you talked about um, the, the sort of the different eras of like American infrastructure. And you know, we have this pattern with this, within us where uh, there is a form of infrastructure that becomes dominant and takes hold and probably is uh, created and subsidized to some extent by uh, different levels of society and government. Uh, and then after a time, we don't really try to fix that infrastructure. We just create the next one uh, and move on. And Uh, you know, I thought, I always thought that was kind of fascinating because you went pretty far back in American history to detail some of that, but, um, I I think that probably impacts how you see a lot of American suburbia too, doesn't it?
1: So my mother-in-law was born in a small town in central, uh, Nebraska, and it was actually the farm that her great grandfather homesteaded after the civil war. He was from Pennsylvania. And at the end of the civil war, one of the ways that the federal government tried to like hold things together was saying, "Okay, it doesn't matter whether you were from the north or the south. You now have the opportunity. Once we clear the undesirables from the territory, of course, you get all this free land. All you have to do is stick a flag in the dirt and 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 build a, a sod hut or log cabin and stay there for a few years and and make it productive, and then the federal government will give you this land for free." And that was an enormous subsidy from the federal government, like you know. And if you were in that town in 1880 or 1900 or 1920, it would be growing. It would be flourishing. There was a lot of uh, activity going on in these little country towns, uh, and the farms were all doing really well. But at a certain point, all the rules got changed because the federal government changed its policies. And what the federal government did is it said, okay, we're going to do this new thing now. We're not interested in family farms. We've already settled the territory. We've already established that this is now America. And it's not what, whatever was there before, that's gone. We're not doing that anymore. Uh, And the subsidies and the attention suddenly went to industrial cities and all the, the small towns and all the family farms emptied out because we had new policies. So like, we don't want little artisanal farms with like seven cows and 10 pigs you know, and a hundred acres of corn. We want industrial agriculture. We want this to scale up. You wanna get big or you wanna get out. And uh, at the same time, the jobs were opening up in the factories in Chicago and Pittsburgh and whatnot, and manufacturing, and all the young people got vacuumed up into the cities. And for some people, that was great. They preferred that. They didn't wanna be stuck on the farm. Uh, Other people would have preferred to live in the country, but the economics didn't work anymore. and everything just tipped. And the little town that my mother-in-law grew up in, you know, the conversation when we go back there, are, are there 29 people or 31 people left? And everyone is 85 years old. And I asked them, what's going to happen, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Like, and, like it, people just shrug. I don't know. You know, so there's going to be, like, the countryside depopulated. And it didn't just happen in America. It happened everywhere. So then we had the next thing was detroit it boomed like detroit went from this tiny place in around 1900 to one of the biggest richest cities in the world and it peaked around 1950 1955 and then it just had this relentless decline and it wasn't just detroit it was cleveland and it was youngstown and it was always because we had federal policies that built up these places you know um, and then we decided okay we're not doing the industrial cities anymore now we're doing this next thing. Now we're doing suburbia and everybody's going to leave the cities and they're going to go live out in the cul-de-sacs and the strip malls. And we're going to subsidize that. And you know what? Just like the farms dried up and died, our industrial uh, city centers, just they just evaporated. Right? Uh, and I always said, you know, I love Detroit. I think it's a great place for all sorts of interesting reasons. But big chunks of it look like Berlin in 1945. I mean, there wasn't a war, but there might as well have been from when what's left. And I think we're now at the point where this suburban thing, which is massively subsidized through all sorts of federal programs, is coming toward the end of its cycle, because we can't keep doing this forever, because there are just natural limits, there are economic limits, there's, there's all kinds of stuff, and it's going to have to change. And it can reinvent itself, or it can fail. And I think we're going to see both of those things happen, like some industrial cities reinvented themselves. Chicago, you know, New York, San Francisco. There was a time when buying a house in San Francisco cost the same as a house in Youngstown, Ohio, hmm. right? But they diverged. They took different paths. Different things happened for all sorts of reasons. It doesn't matter. Um, I think that a lot of the suburbs that we built were in marginal places. They were never meant to last, really. I mean, it was all a very short-term kind of thing. And we're going to see them get reinvented somehow. And I don't know what that looks like, and I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that because mm-hmm. it's not. I mean, I'll be dead. <laughs> that's the short version. Um, also, yeah. these are not places I care about, and they're not places that I live, so it doesn't bother me at all if they thrive or fail on their own terms. That's that's okay yeah. with me.
0: I don't. It's not my fight. So I want to I want to come back to this, but that um, that point, the story you told actually led me to another question. You know, something I've been thinking about a, late, uh, a lot lately. Um, but, so you're a San Franciscan now, you've been living in the city for what, 30 years?
1: Since the mid nineties. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's been okay. getting on to 30 years now. It's um, and so,
0: yeah. so I think, you know, I think your point about Detroit was sort of like king of the world in 1950, uh, is totally true. And it, it and it's obvious and it was an immensely wealthy city. You can, you can still see those remnants when you go, downtown and see the incredible buildings and facilities that um, that were built uh, in in that era and before. Uh, I've it I've thought really for about the last couple of years that it feels like San Francisco 2020 is like the peak San Francisco um, because of the the immense impact and influence of Silicon Valley and all of the incredible wealth that's generated in Silicon Valley. And I wonder you've been there long enough. Do you you've seen this trajectory. It was already obviously a successful city in the 1990s, but it has taken to new heights uh, since then. Uh, How do you perceive that? I mean, is it something where you where you could see a curve where 50 years from now we look back and we think that 2020 was about the peak of wealth and influence for the Bay Area?
1: I think the tech industry is having the same um, bell-shaped curve as the auto industry that there was a young startup uh, uh, industry, lots of speculation, lots of money flowing in. A lot of people made a huge amount of money. Uh, these tech companies have a lot of influence. But what I've watched uh, over the years is that the, the things that used to take 200 people to do, now one person does it. Right, The automation is becoming automated. Right? like that, it, it, it's like you got robots making other robots, kind of a little bit. And I'm in no way an expert, but I just know that uh, a lot of companies peak and then they decline. They, they the um, the pieces get broken up. It's sort of like when you used to build a car, you built the whole car in Detroit, and then they realized, wait a minute, why don't we start making some of the pieces in Mississippi and Alabama because it's cheaper. Then we'll just assemble the parts in Detroit. And they're like, wait a minute, why don't we assemble them in, in, in China or Mexico where it's just so much cheaper, right? And we don't have all those burdens labor unions and they have all environmental rules. We don't need that. <laughs> uh, and then what you realize is that there's more cars in the world than ever, but they're not made anywhere in particular. They're just everywhere, right? And I think tech has already gone well down that road. You know, you see the the people who run the companies living in very desirable parts of the Bay Area, you know, in Berlin and in San Francisco and in some of the leafy, the the wine country kind of thing. Uh, And and the middle management is in nice places, but, you know, they're they're scattering them out. And then there's the actual workers who are working from anywhere in Malaysia, you know, and and because there's talent in Iceland. Why don't we just hire seven people in Iceland to do this for us, you know, and and again, tech is going to be everywhere. And nowhere and yeah. what that means for San Francisco is that the fire hose of money is is slowing down and when you have an unlimited amount of money coming into your town, you can you can make a lot of mistakes and it's okay but when you get back to uh, an actual normal amount of, of revenue right then you have to do things more carefully and San Francisco is struggling with that because uh, we didn't have to think too hard before and now we actually do. So yeah, and I think that like, fifty years from now, San Francisco might be in the same shape it was fifty years ago. See, this is the thing that people aren't, aren't paying attention to. The reason that there was the Summer of Love and all the hippies and all the, the you know the Janis Joplin and the you know the, uh, is that it was so cheap. San Francisco mm. was an incredibly yeah. cheap city. Right. There were all these big half-abandoned Victorian mansions everywhere. Nobody wanted them. You you couldn't give those things away. Because the city had basically, the middle classes had decanted to the suburbs, right? And the, and the core of the city was, was left in, a, in a, a shell condition. And it provided a tremendous opportunity for people who weren't obsessed about the school district, who had a high tolerance for weirdos, you know, to colonize it and to create a whole new culture. Because San Francisco was a very conservative place in the 1950s right it was mostly irish and italians with huge families and, and they were like strict catholics and, and you know it was like a cartoon of of uh, of a certain kind of you know working class uh, ethnic city where, where you know all the cops were irish and you know, that kind of thing and they left, and it allowed a whole other subculture to emerge there so it could be that 50 years from now san francisco uh is in worse shape in a lot of ways, like financially or whatnot. But it could be actually like a really cool place. Like, can you believe that in 1887 somebody built this massive mansion, and then it went into decline, and then like in 19, you know, like in, in 2020 somebody spent all this money. This dot com crazy person spent a billion dollars fixing it up, and now it's like it's kind of like this creaky old ruin. And we get to live in it for 19 dollars a month. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, like I can see that working out. Uh, and yeah. that might be facilitated by mm, an earthquake. I'm you know, just saying. Yeah. It's, Who knows? This is how things happen.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've also, I mean, I think one of the things you've also been really uh, eloquent in talking about is uh, when, when you talk about San Francisco and you talk about California uh, in general, and then you compare it to the places you travel, um, you know, pretty, you've been pretty quick to take on like the, uh, the so-called Texas, you know, miracle and and talk about how really other parts of the country are on the same Exact trajectory uh, as California, and that California is really just early, uh, and and maybe um, maybe it got there faster just because of the uh, unbelievable growth that happened in a short period of time in the state.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've spent time in in, in Texas, and there are definitely neighborhoods in, in Dallas and stuff that I I could I could live in if I if I had to. I could I could find a place in, in Texas that I'd be happy living in. Uh, not my first choice, uh, but what they're doing is they're having their explosive growth moment. Like um, they're just – they have a lot of flat, cheap land, and they can mm-hmm. just keep building. You know, it's not like there's a mountain or an ocean that they're going to bump into, you know, which is, you know, one of California's problems is that there's actually two Californias. There's a thin ribbon along the coast, and then there's everything else. Mm-hmm. And you don't – you know, I, I sound like a snob when I say this, but if you're in the interior, it is so hot and dry in the summer and dusty, right? And it's, it's kind of damp and cold and, and gray in the winter. It, like the whole point of being in California is you want to be where the weather is nice, where the scenery is nice. That's mm-hmm. where the culture and the money and the good jobs are all clustered up. And if you're going to live in the interior, if you're going to live in Bakersfield or Fresno or Redding or something like that, you might as well move to Texas and save yourself a whole lot of money. <laughs> uh, Texas is going to grow and grow and grow and grow until it bleeds to death. Because all that infrastructure, all the roads, all the pipes, and they really like to spread out big in Texas. And there's no way that the tax revenue from the things that they're building is going to be able to pay for replacing all that infrastructure when it ages. Right? And then you, you're going to have those same choices, right? Do you abandon it? Because it's not worth fixing at this point. The, the town doesn't have the money to fix the pipes and the roads. And, and the, the individual homeowners are going to be like, well, I, I got money. Do I want to spend it doing this or do I want to move to some new place that's better? And, and what better will be like in the future is up to other people to decide. You know, they'll have a different attitude than we do because there'll be different priorities in the future. Right? Um, or maybe a place is worth saving, but then you have to figure out how to make things cash flow. I mean, it really is a capitalist kind of thing. Like, if you don't have enough tax revenue to pay for the roads or the pipes, your business has failed. That's bankruptcy, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out how do you generate more value on your place to pay for the underlying stuff, right? Like, if you if you look at anything that was built 500 years ago, there was a there was a concentration. There was a town. It was all clustered tight together, surrounded by farmland, right? There's a reason they did that. It wasn't because they didn't want to spread out. They had no choice. The resources
0: were not there, right? Yeah. And it, it's um, it's interesting because, you know, as part of our back and forth over the years in talking about these things, you know, we, we come to realize that uh, fundamentally there's not a whole lot different in how a city such as mine, Kansas City, or a city in Texas, or a city in California, or uh, a city on the East Coast, how they are fundamentally um, planned, built, uh, financed, uh, designed they are, you know we we more or less have a national system. Uh, the infrastructure funding is pretty similar from place to place. There are little tweaks here and there that are different. Uh, the planning formula is really pretty similar. Uh, there are some places that have much stronger planning laws and some that have weaker planning laws, but fundamentally it's a system built around you know land use zoning that is pretty consistent across the country. Um, and it's just that there are you know, a lot of different cities that have different impacts, whether it's a geographic impact that puts a limit on them or uh, a high growth versus uh, no growth uh, at all. And, and so, you know, it really is a case where some cities and places really just seem to feel the effects earlier uh, than others. And, and even like my city now, we're starting to get to that point because we're, we're growing uh, again that we're starting to have a lot of those discussions that feel like discussions that probably took place in, in San Francisco, 20 years ago.
1: You know, one of the things that you mentioned in your, um, your introductory podcast where you were like explaining what, what the messy city was going to be about is Mm -hmm. you wanted to offer people glimpses into potential solutions. Yeah. Right. Like, okay. So we've defined the problem. Now what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. Right. And I actually, I kind of want to get into that. Like, Let's do it. That, 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 is, that interests me. Yeah. Um, and one of this, this quote solutions, and I don't believe there are solutions. I think that there are, there are situations that have to be endured. I, I don't think you're going to fix this. Stuff. Cause like when you say solution, it means everything can stay just the way it is. Right. And I'm like, no, that's not on the table. We're going to have to do things differently. What does that look like? And um, uh, I, I kind of put some of those things into practice in my own life, like uh, I have to preface all of this uh, people hear that I live in San Francisco and they immediately think like coastal elite you know billionaire kind of thing and like, uh, okay I am a, a housekeeper, a gardener, a house painter, a handyman right so that that's that's me right and the reason that i'm able to live in San Francisco on that kind of an income which is not a lot of money right, is that I got together and I found weird workarounds to, to achieve my personal goals in a profoundly dysfunctional landscape, right? So one of the solutions was I was young. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't want to get older and find myself in a position where I might be evicted or, uh, you know, I, I might just get priced out. And like, what do, you, what do you do when you just can't afford to live in the place you you built your life around? And I didn't want to be in that position. So I got together with a group of other friends who had the same situation. We were young. Nobody had a lot of money. And I said, if we pool our money, if we just take whatever we have and we put it together, we could afford to do something collectively that we could not do individually. And I identified a small apartment building. It's a four-unit apartment building with one bedroom in each apartment and a little detached cottage in the back. So it's a five-unit commercial property, you know, apartment building. And... We bought it collectively, and it's actually a lot cheaper to buy a whole building per unit than it is to buy just one apartment or to buy a single family home. So we actually got a bulk discount. Mm -hmm. And the problem, of course, was we had to get financing, Mm -hmm. and the bank didn't want to give us a loan. So we had to change the way we approached the situation. We went to the bank with a different pro forma. We said, we're investors. We want to be (laughs) slumlords. And said, "Got it. Here's the forms. Let's let's do this. You know, the cash flows. You know, the the loan is this much. This is what the market rents are. Boom. You're going to make money. Gra- you know, congratulations. And then we just moved in and we rented the units to ourselves. So we were both the tenants and the landlords. It was like a little loop, you know. And that got us to own property in San Francisco for nine hundred dollars a month, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like that was the, the smartest thing I, any of us ever did. It was, but we had to do it collectively, right? So um, one of the People who reads my blog reached out to me. She was in Maine, in a small town, and uh, it was always a little bit pricier than what the locals could afford because there was money that would come in from Boston and New York, and kind of. But when the pandemic hit, that just exploded. And I'm talking to this woman, and I said, "Look, I just got onto Zillow, and there is a three-unit building. It's about 100 years old. Back then, they would build enormous apartments. They were like 2,000 square feet. There was three stories, one apartment on each floor." three-bedroom apartments, big enough to raise kids in, right? And it had three-car garage and a, and a decent-sized yard, and it was in the town that she wanted to live in. And it says $500,000, okay? It's a lot of money for one person. But if you have two friends, you take $500,000, you divide it by three, that becomes a very affordable way to live in the town that you want to live in, right? And you're cherry-picking your neighbors because you're going into this together, right? Um, that's like a workaround. You know, right. it's, it's very specific, it's very particular, right? mm-hmm. she didn't want to do it. So no, no no, that's weird, that's just too weird went, okay, good luck because where you're going to end up is you're going to wind up renting or maybe owning some kind of like trailer park or or townhouse condominium made of vinyl and compressed dust out on the, on the edge of the highway, you know thirty minutes away because that's where you're going to wind up with your budget in mm-hmm. that town right it, it, another thing about working around things is that uh in in 2008, we had this massive uh, economic crash, and that crash allowed me to buy property in Sonoma County, which I could never have otherwise afforded. And I found the smallest, most run-down, crappy old house on a beautiful half acres, you know, and the neighbors have horses, and, you know, it's the country, and yet it's still close enough where we could walk or ride a bike to, to a little town where there's a post office and there's some restaurants, and and it, it's, it's walkable... Uh, country living, you know, mm-hmm. with a, like a little hint of suburbia, but it's mostly farmland and stuff. And it was affordable because we had an economic crash. We're always going to have another economic crash. They come pretty regularly, you know, and the more you try to stop them from happening, the bigger the crash is when it finally arrives. So I, there are opportunities for ordinary people to to work around these things. Um, and then because I, I was able to buy this little house, I began to implement uh, the uh, original green approaches. You just had Steve moves mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm not doing the, the solar panels and the and, and all the bells and whistles and the computer chips. and the, it, No. Insulate it, put in really good windows, put on a metal roof to keep the heat off, shade the south and the west facades, to keep the sun off of it. Right? And, and don't in, don't interact with the authorities. Don't go... Because I actually have friends who are architects and they'd come by and they'd look, oh, well, we could do this and we could do that. And, and I said, you know what the permit, the permit fee, the impact fees for an addition, are gonna be like fifty-four thousand hmm. dollars before you buy any lumber or hire a carpenter. Like hmm. just out of the just to pay like and I'm like, no, we're not doing that. No. <laughs> so yeah. there are ways that you can navigate the landscape that exists in in a in a in a way, but you have to be patient and you have to be willing to do weird things.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of the things I uh I really enjoy and encourage anybody to read about on your site is all the really, really clever and intelligent workarounds that that you've taken and that you've seen others take over the years i want to ask you a little bit about so the original house the the five unit building that you bought in san francisco so just like a hyper specific thing so did you form did you have to form like a corporation uh, as a group to buy that and then what's what's the status of the situation now are the same people around or is the building paid off what what, what does that look like
1: so it's a um it's a legal document that you draw up, where you're essentially forming a, a mini corporation, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's like a, a co-op or, or or a business. You're, you're establishing a business, and the business is owning the building, and then there are people who own the business, right? So it's, it's you're, you're setting up a tiny corporation, mm-hmm. and over time, uh, what we did is we applied to the city to convert. The building, which has one owner, which is the, the piece of paper that we're pretending is, you know, a corporation, it, to turn it into condominiums, and that took us eleven and a half years oh my. because the bureaucracy is endless. But we're all still here. Nobody's left, right? Because you've, you're living in a place for nine hundred dollars a month when all around you the price is just going crazy, right? Why would any of us leave, mm-hmm. okay? Um And then once we had um, we converted. To condominiums with the city, then we each took individual mortgages. So now we have financial firewalls between us. Now, in the meantime, for the first 11 years, if any one of us didn't come up with our share of that payment, the others would have had to make it up. So there was a risk involved. Like, you know, it was like, it was me and it was Sam and it was Kevin and it was whatever. And mm-hmm. if one of us didn't pay the, their share, the rest of us would have been liable for that. It didn't happen, but it could have. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to, when you're drawing up the documents, you have to think about all the contingencies. You, know, you have to sit down with a lawyer and say, okay, what happens if somebody dies? What happens if there's a divorce? What happens if somebody just doesn't want to be here anymore and they're going to move off? You know? So we, you, had to, you have to think about all the contingencies and say, okay, well, when that happens, this is our plan B. And it's all written down and we already know what's going to happen next. Right? Uh, once we went condo, then we didn't have that problem so much. You know, because then we have all our own little mortgages and our, our own responsibilities. So if you want to die or get
0: divorced, that's your problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But yeah. we're still all, nobody's left. That's interesting. So we're actually just growing old together. It's still all the original group. That... Yeah, nobody's gone. Huh.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Now, what it had done for us uh, is that because we had capped our, our housing costs at a really good level, even though none of us were making that much money, it allowed us to save money. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was, it was possible to like buy a place in Sonoma when the opportunity presented itself because we were actually being frugal. Yeah. Right? Like what a lot of people, the, the normal trajectory is is that you start out with a starter home and then a few years go by and, and then you get you get a bigger house and then you, you, know, you feel like, oh, now I can afford a nice place. So now you, you're going to get, you know, I'm going to go to the villas at retention pond phase four and I'm going to live the life. you know? And, and then what you're doing is you're adding debt to your life you're getting more stuff and then you gotta get the, the truck and then you gotta get the boat. You know. yeah. But what we did is that we actually like we thought, well we're happy where we are. Let's just take that money that we're not spending and buy other properties in other places. And then you can rent those out at a, at a profit. And then you've got more income coming in and more savings, and then you can buy another property. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like like during the pandemic, I bought two more houses because I could. You know, mm-hmm. again, not because I'm rich. And, you know, I'm I'm like I'm a nobody, but I just you live frugally, you get some extra incomes going on from other places, and that income provides more savings, which provides more income, uh, and that's why I'm in Mexico City right now. I'm thinking about retiring. Yes. And this is a really attractive retirement destination. So I'm I'm here to get, I'm, I'm about to get my immigration cards, and uh, if I buy a property here, uh, the dollar goes farther in Mexico, um, and I could wind up being crazy old man San Felipe, you know, in Mexico <laughs> City, and I,
0: I might like that. Yeah. So. It's funny that you tell that story because probably you know I've made an awful lot of really dumb financial decisions in my life, but probably the smartest one I made was really the first property I bought here in Kansas City was actually a triplex it was one of those you know great old nineteen ten houses in an old neighborhood that was carved up into three apartments in the Great depression uh, and stayed that way for a long time and I was able to to buy that at a pretty uh, low price in, in the mid nineteen nineties, uh, and then kept that for quite some time. So that was almost like that's like the so it was like the Kansas City version, a little bit of what you were you know talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think you know I think what you did is really clever, and it reminds me a lot of um, you know when I did that, and then the next house that I bought, I actually uh, had a carriage house built behind it so that I could also have that rental income on it. And uh, you know, twenty years later all the kids call that house hacking, basically what we you and I have done. Uh, and I've written a little bit about that. You've done it a lot in some really creative ways. Not so I, in a sense, I would consider what you did with the original building. That's obviously a, a really smart form of house hacking in an urban area. But the house in Sonoma, uh, and, and even the houses in Madison, um, are, are sort of a different version of it, you know, you may not be living there, but they have the opportunity Uh, for you to live there. You've set them up in a way that you could, if you ever wanted to, you could potentially move to either of those places.
1: Well, I mean, Madison is the kind of town that I like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a small city, but it's the state capital. It's a university town. It's got medical centers. It's got some, uh, some uh, uh, tech companies that specialize in like healthcare and agriculture, because that's, you know, it's particular to Wisconsin. And, There's neighborhoods that I know I could live in and be happy in. And also, I have family in Wisconsin. So there's that. Um, Would I rather be old in Mexico City compared to Madison? I think so. (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, so the whole whole point of figuring out how to buy something in San Francisco when I was young and poor is that I didn't want to be vulnerable as I got older. And the reason that I was excited about getting a place like 50 miles outside of the city in Sonoma, was that if we had an earthquake, I would have a fallback position. Like, okay, the, the building was destroyed. That's a big problem. You know, it, Even if you were fully insured, it takes a couple years minimum to rebuild because everybody's rebuilding everything all at once. And like, Good luck finding materials and labor and stuff. Um, then I realized that the forest fire situation in California is really escalating. And I realized that it might be that the Sonoma house is damaged Possibly in a fire or an earthquake, and then the city might be the thing I fall back on. Wisconsin, having a couple of rental properties in Wisconsin, it's it's another option. Like I could fall back on that, and it could be that it's the revenue, it's the income that will I can use to rent something else somewhere, or it could be those houses specifically that I could move into if I needed to, and I would I would be okay. I'd be happy like in one of those houses in Madison, Mm -hmm. and then if you add Mexico City and then there was, there was a house in, in rural Hawaii, by the way, which I had for 18 years, which I sold a few years ago. Um, so that was another plan B, right? <laughs> and, and now it's Mexico City, uh, which is, like, Mexico City has all sorts of vulnerabilities. Like, there's, there's earthquakes here. There's, there's all kinds, of, but, but it's a different kind of problem in a different kind of place. Uh, and this probably won't be my last thing. Like, I'm already thinking about, once we get Mexico City sorted out, what's the next thing, right? And it's like, so I, I like
0: covering my bases. Yeah. And so uh, I'm curious, where uh, where do you think that desire to have a lot of plan Bs comes from?
1: Poverty as a child. It's not complicated. We I grew up <laughs> in a family where every imaginable thing, anything that could go wrong, it went wrong yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, my mom was a wonderful woman and a great uh, mother. And she really strove constantly to improve the condition of the family, but she had spectacularly bad Jason men, my father <laughs> and then my stepfather, these guys were not, they they were not interested in, in in her plans. And I grew up constantly moving, like always one step ahead of the the landlord because they couldn't pay the rent. And then we finally settled down in a, in, in the suburban New Jersey and, uh, because my stepfather was in the army and he got the, the house through the, the veterans administration you know, mm-hmm. programs. And, and I just watched that house fall apart. Like yeah. just year after year, things broke and they never got fixed. And it just, the house just physically fell apart as I grew up. And it was just, actually, I, I I can't do this. This is not how I'm going to live my life. I left home when I was like 15 and I, was like, I walked away and I'm like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And I should have wound up dead like 20 times, but, I, I didn't here i am so yeah, why cool. do i have a plan b that's why
0: yeah and a plan c and d and, and e mm-hmm. uh, which is certainly and, they,
1: and they're they not all going to go wrong one of them will still right. be okay and i yeah. don't need that much to be happy yeah. if i'm in the right place with the right people i'm good
0: yeah uh it, it's interesting also there's there's a community uh which you probably know about now being in mexico city but there's a community of like americans who uh, of all different ages who uh basically are living either overseas or looking to live overseas and especially interest in a lot of Latin American countries. I know Peru is really popular. Ecuador, I think is really popular because you mm-hmm. can, you can live there so inexpensively compared to the United States and, and even, you know, healthcare is cheap. Um, all sorts of things are you know, incredibly inexpensive.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm not here because it's cheap. I'm here because it's nice, but the fact that mm-hmm. it's affordable is a big plus. Yeah. Um, and I know that there, there was some bad press. I think The New York Times ran this article about how like American expats are mm-hmm. ruining Mexico. Right. And it, this is a city of 21 million people, and there are 10,000 Americans here. Yeah, right? So like you, you 10,000 10, Americans can try really hard, but they're not going to ruin a 21 million people yeah. city. Uh, yeah. We're all clustered in, in a handful of neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods are getting uh, affected. They're getting much more expensive. Right. The locals are getting squeezed out. It's gentrified. That's all a, a very mm-hmm. real thing, right? And not all of the Americans are well behaved, right? <laughs> that's the other thing: is you're in somebody else's country. Be gracious about it. Be kind to people. Don't don't be a, 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 a mucosa, you know. Don't be a snot, right? Uh, but you know, the the thing is that there's as many people benefiting from the influx of Americans as there are people feeling the the, the sharp end of that stick, because people are making money from us, you know. Yeah. Like it, so it, again, what are you going to, yeah, I don't worry about this stuff. I just don't.
0: <laughs> well, and I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, in our back and forth is always interesting because uh, I, I don't want to be reductive about it, but just for the, for the sake of fun, it sometimes our, uh, our conversations become almost like the pessimist and the optimist. Um, and again, it's not, uh, that that's probably not a totally fair, Uh, Oh, I'll I'll, I'll take, I'll
1: I'll be the pessimist in this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But, and I'm, I'm I'm usually
0: the optimist, but not always. Uh, And uh, so, you know, I think, and obviously one of the big sources of that back and forth is uh, you know, I'm still in a world where I feel like I'm, I am trying to nudge people and trying to fix systems that aren't working and trying to, you know, make places better, blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, that's my daily life. And, and so we have kind of this interesting back and forth about whether, you know, whether some things are fixable uh, or not, and uh, I, I, I have found your perspective very interesting. Yet here I am, still plugging ahead, still, you know, trying to fix zoning codes and development processes and everything else.
1: Uh, if somebody is paying you to bang <laughs> your head up against the wall, that's fine, right? I mean, you're, you're you're making a living. You're attempting to do things. You have successes. You have failures. But you're actually being paid to do the thing that you think you should be doing. That's fine. No one is ever ever going to pay me to do anything ever <laughs> i mean like <laughs> i have gone to the 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 city hall meetings and i've I've tried to participate and I've talked to mayors and I've, you mm-hmm. know, I've done this all over the country and uh, I am irrelevant i'm not even irrelevant I'm, i don't exist in, in their world like mm-hmm. I'm the person that they already figured out how to gently handle right to oh okay yeah oh, I, I'm so glad you came. This is really important stuff you're telling no they're just gently getting me out the door. I'm, yeah. I'm wasting my time, right? You, you show up, you have credentials, somebody's paying you to do this stuff. Great. Wonderful. You know, I, you might transform, you know, Kansas city and I help you succeed. <laughs> uh, that's not my world. Yeah. I don't, I don't think about that. Uh, what I see happening and I, and you see this in Detroit and I, I, Spent a lot of time in in Cincinnati a mm-hmm. property in Cincinnati for yeah I was gonna to ask time.
0: you to, I was gonna ask you to mention the Cincinnati effort because I think it tied in into all yeah this. and
1: i I happen to really like Cincinnati like I, I had a whole big plan to around city. Cincinnati yeah. until I went into the meat grinder of of the local institutions and I said you don't want me here and I'm leaving and that was the end of that right like mm-hmm. I don't I don't' I'm not gonna waste too much more time but um the thing about these places is that they've declined so much for so long that they're actually ripe for reinvention. That there are these uh, main street town neighborhoods or even early suburban neighborhoods from like the 20s or the 50s that are really well-placed geographically because they're pretty close to the center of the city and yet they're, they're up against... You know, nature. There's there's a river and there's a, a forest reserve. They're kind of in a sweet spot. A lot of these neighborhoods that have really declined in a big way, and they were just incredibly cheap. And I thought, okay, if I move into this place, if I buy a property, I can I can do this and I can do that, and, and it would it could be like amazing. And then you realize that like the zoning regulations and the permit process and the, and they like they are not interested in your your vision. They have a different vision, and it does not include you or any of your plans. And once I figured that out, I'm like, oh, I'm done. I can move on to someplace else that wants me, right? Because all I was going to do is take a little 700-square-foot, one-story shotgun shack that was in really, really rough shape. It was a $16,000 house, right? Like, it it, it cost less than a car. And on either side of it and across the street and all up and down the block, there were two-story houses. And all I wanted to do was make it a two-story house, just like the houses all around it. And that was never going to happen. I spent a year and a half going all around the bureaucracies trying to get permission to do this, and and I just realized like they're never gonna they're never gonna sign off on this. Why doesn't matter why don't care, you know. Um, sometimes doing nothing is the the right thing. If I had just put a little lipstick on that pig, I could have waited a few years and sold it for a whole lot more money because the neighborhood was improving rapidly. Houses on that same block now sell for four hundred thousand hmm. dollars. Had I done nothing, nothing. I could have made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I had these like dreams, like, oh, I'm going to improve it. It's going to be really nice. It's going to be great. Like, that's where I went wrong. I've learned doing nothing is often the very best thing. And then you get criticized for that. Oh, so you're going to let other people do all the hard work and you're just going to benefit. And I'm like, yeah, that is a really good plan. (laughs) Well, especially don't interact with the authorities. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well especially as you mentioned if you're if you're just you know a guy if you're just a person yeah. that is um you're not part of a corporate entity or something like that that it's that it, it really is the best way to go and and to look for those workarounds wherever you can yeah so uh what's what's next for you johnny i mean you're you'll be in mexico for a little while and then i guess at some point you'll come home uh what's what's next
1: yeah i'll um, I'll go back home to san francisco and because I do actually have a life there. Uh, this Mexico is a, um getting my, my paperwork in order and by the mm-hmm. way immigrating to Mexico is actually really easy um, if you're not a criminal you know if, if you're not deeply impoverished you know if you can if you can show up and show that you know you're a respectable person who is more or less solvent you don't have to be rich you just have to not be totally broke uh, mm-hmm. the Mexicans welcome you like yes please come here that's fine um, it's a, a, the ultimate reverse commute um, and uh, I'm going to be going back to this is just to get my paperwork in order and to start to focus on where exactly I would like to be in the future Uh, and I'll come back you know a couple times a year and work that out Uh, I'm going to be going back to San Francisco uh, and I'm actually going to be spending most of this summer at the Sonoma house because the tenants who were living there left on February 1st and I'm going to be bring the house back. Every time tenants move out, I take some months and I make another round of improvements.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So a lot of gardening stuff, a lot of landscaping stuff, a lot of exterior work. Um, and that, and I actually enjoy that. Like I, I'm really in my element when I'm painting and cleaning and planting trees and doing that stuff um, and shuttling back and forth to work in the city and then going out to Sonoma. Um, uh, I'm kind of at, at, at like I'm, I'm 55. This is like, semi-retirement for me, like puttering in the garden and going back to the city. And that's you know, what I do. Yeah. It, it's a good spot to be in. Based at start, where I started from and where I am now, it's nice. You <laughs> yeah. really feel the difference. You really notice like, okay, I am not I am not uh, broke anymore and I'm not like, you know, living in my car.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I can imagine that's an enormous difference. Uh, well, I've yeah. got to, I still got to get you to Kansas City sometime and you know, I've got a garden here that you can putter in as much as you would like, and okay. plenty of work that needs to be done would, around the house. So, would you and your
1: family like to come and spend some time in the Sonoma house in San Francisco? Because we can accommodate you. We Absolutely, have people all the time.
0: Absolutely, we'd love to do it. So, uh, I think uh, I think we should definitely make a plan to do that. So, well, um, so I, I'm not like the bundle of sunshine
1: telling everybody that everything is going to be okay. I think a lot of terrible things are going to happen, but I think you yeah. can navigate your way
0: through it and arrive at a good spot. That's the takeaway. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Uh, it's great advice for a lot of people. It's also great advice for people who are trying to like work on their own community. It's like have a realistic assessment of where things are and what's going to happen. There's going to be, you know, like any time period in history, there's going to be bad things happen, but there's also great opportunities and and opportunities for people to do good things and, and still live a good life. Uh, so, uh, I've been a big fan of, um, you know, what you've done and, and your website for a long time and, uh, so why don't you remind everybody where to find you?
1: Granola, shotgun. Granola, like the cereal, shotgun, like the firearm, like yeah. That's
0: it. And, what, and real quickly, what was uh, the genesis for the name? Uh, I noticed
1: that people who don't like each other were much more alike than they realized. Like mm-hmm. if you take like a cartoon liberal from Marin County, which is a very crunchy granola type place, and you take someone from like Orange County, which is like super Republican, conservative, you know, the shotgun, and you look at actually the things that they care about and the things they insist on, they're exactly the same things. It's yeah. like neither one of those people wants poor people living in their neighborhood. If you live in a million dollar house, you don't want an $800,000 house on your block because <laughs> that's that's beneath you. And you don't want those trashy people sending their kids to the same school as the school your kids go to. There was no difference. It's a yeah. criminal shotgun. Yeah. It's convergent evolution and nobody
0: noticed. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Well, thanks, Johnny. Really appreciate this. Uh, we'll do it again sometime. All right. Take care.